It's a funny experience having a thick enough skin to float across the surface of a deluge of hatred and bullshit. I strongly recommend it if you've never had the opportunity to insulate yourself from a whirlwind, a fire hose, a hurricane. Two weeks ago now, I was on Joe Rogan's show and uh, we had a just one minor exchange in the course of an amicable three-hour-plus interview uh, about the risk of myocarditis, uh, heart inflammation in young males as a result of mRNA vaccines. And uh, the media picked up on that exchange and uh, blew it out of all proportion, saying that I had owned Joe in a fiery exchange that had proven him wrong and that CNN was calling him, you know, he was playing expert doctor like a kid. I mean, it was just, just got ridiculous. And as a result of that, then, of course, the uh, the backlash of uh, dum-dums on Twitter come out of the woodwork thinking that like I had staged that as some kind of a gotcha moment or that I'm behind the headlines that CNN writes or something. Nothing could be further from the truth. And what's interesting and surreal about it that you might find interesting is that the way that the different uh, means that people reach out to you sort of dictate what their tone and even their beliefs are going to be. So People who direct message me on Instagram are almost 100%. I mean, there have been hundreds, if not thousands by now, almost almost 100% super, super positive, saying it's so nice to hear a refreshing voice, to hear someone a bit different. It's so nice to see someone push back against Joe. Uh, you know, the it can sometimes feel like a little bit of a, a same, same kind of ditto climate when these podcasts have people who agree with them. So it's nice to see a little bit of honest debate and back and forth in an amicable way, blah, blah, blah. That's been the over, overarching uh, sentiment. That's also the sentiment on like the Joe Rogan subreddit, uh, where lots of fans really like the episode. And everyone who I care about, who I respect, who's hit me up or emailed has been really complimentary. And then there's this parallel universe of, which is instructive about what social media is doing to our minds, of people um, partially spewing hate and like offensive gay slurs or something like that, which is fine. Uh, it doesn't it, like that says more to me about them than it does about me. Um, but what's interesting is that they start getting into arguments with each other specifically. I mean, the worst has been Instagram comments, which is funny because Instagram direct messages have been so complimentary, but the comments I guess are from people who can't be bothered actually messaging me or following me but are arguing with each other about how about whether to hate me and then the twitter thread the twitter comments are all just people getting into side arguments of their own and trying to own each other it's really instructive about how bloody toxic these forums are in bringing out the worst in us it's incredibly unseemly i mean if any of the people who are participating in the the arguments on my Twitter threads could step back and see themselves in the aggregate instead of thinking of themselves as an individual who is do, who is fighting a good fight by proving a point, regardless of whether or not they think that they're fighting on my behalf or whether they're attacking me, they'd be horrified. Like, I'm the only person who gets the God's eye view here, <laughs> in, in a way, and so I'm the only person who sort of has the luxury of seeing what a a hellhole and a swamp it is and letting it float by me. And thank God I'm not in it. Uh, that would be terrible.
And I strongly advise you not to be in it as well. Uh, you know, I don't just mean don't use social media. I understand that it'll sometimes be a, a distraction or a useful way for you to follow your, what your friends are up to. But I mean, don't get invested in it. Don't get invested in these conversations. Certainly not on, on my behalf. Although if you're going to get invested in these conversations, do it on my behalf. Don't attack me. Um, this, is a, this is all just a long roundabout way of saying that the way that we should be engaging with each other in the 21st century is by sitting down face to face, looking in each other's eyes, listening to each other's voices and having conversations. Conversations about things that are sensitive, conversations in which we're not trying to own each other, but are trying to understand each other. Conversations that are timely, that are relevant. And yes, you guessed it, that are sometimes just a little uncomfortable. Today on the show, what a big, big get. What a great, great chat. Gee, I loved this episode. Stick with this one. David Frum, you may know him as uh, the the man who coined the term the axis of evil in uh, George W. Bush's 2002 State of the Union address, the one that was probably the most important State of the Union uh, of my lifetime, the uh, post-September 11th uh, course setting on what the U.S. administration was going to do with this horrendous tragedy, and that speech largely set the stage for the subsequent two decades of war in Afghanistan, the invasion of Iraq, and so on. And David Frum was the senior speechwriter uh, behind putting the White House's ideas into words. Um, he's now a senior editor at The Atlantic. He's really less a political figure, although he's thought of in those terms, than he is a, a media figure and a journalist. He he. Did uh, he went to Yale University and uh, and did a Bachelor of Arts and a Master of Arts? He studied law at Harvard. He's Canadian originally, um, and he was a he was a, a journal. I mean, he was an editor at, at the Wall Street Journal during the 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 years of Bush Senior, and it was only once George W. Bush was elected that he was invited to come into politics uh, for the first time. Uh, that branded him well, exploded him onto the the national stage, and he's become. Uh, I suppose a more beloved figure in recent years for having taken a principled stance against Donald Trump and Trumpism and conservatism and sort of handing in his Republican card. He came out as having voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 because he couldn't stomach the idea of voting for for Trump. Nonetheless, he was a neocon hawk, uh, you know, very much in the midst of the Bush administration. He was at the White House on 9-11. We talk about that. We talk about the culture wars. We talk about what he makes of wokeism and, you know, very, very interesting mind and just one of those conversations where I love dancing around through the <laughs> through the daisies and jumping from lily pad to lily pad with no real idea exactly where I'm going. And at the end of it, you go, wow, what an adventure. So I hope you enjoy it uh, as much as I did. Um, just a little bit of housekeeping about uh, many of your questions, which are getting a bit repetitious. No offense. There's just a lot of you on social media in the wake of the, the Joe Rogan uh, campaign. I will tweet a tweet thread about this as well. Uh, but basically, if you have questions about who was right or who was wrong about myocarditis, <laughs> I would never would have thought that such an arcane uh, health question could cause so many people so much interest. Um, I think the relevant thing to say is that we are talking about vanishingly, vanishingly small risks. Um, whether you are a 15-year-old male who gets vaccinated or whether you're a 15-year-old male who gets COVID. The only real thing that I would be thinking about is 
am you know to what extent am I a vector for infection for other people? Um, Omicron makes that a bit less of a pressing question because it's so contagious that you can be a vector for infection even if you are vaccinated. However, you are likely at a test positive and you are likely to pass it on and you are likely to be symptomatic if you are not vaccinated. So if you do care about keeping your grandparents alive and you do care about sort of in decreasing, you know, increasing the amount of herd immunity and decreasing the amount of ambient uh, pathogen in the community that deranges all of our lives by having flights cancelled because pilots are sick and having Broadway shows cancelled because stars are sick and having schools have to wear masks for longer and all of the kind of nonsense that we've gotten so bloody bored of during the pandemic. The, the best way to to put an end to such nonsense, other than just saying, we'll let it rip and, you know, whoever is unvaccinated or old or fat or immune suppressed can just uh, can cop the consequences and maybe die. Uh, the alternative to that is just to say, well, all of us just get, let's, let's get transmission rates as low as possible. So let's get vaccination rates as high as possible. They're not perfect. You can still catch it, but you're somewhere in the range of two to three times likelier to catch it and pass it on if you're not vaccinated. And you're somewhere in the range of eight to 20 times likelier to get really sick or die. Uh, if you're not vaccinated. So for me, the focus, the relentless focus on myocarditis as this one node, this one data point is a little bit of a distraction. It feels like just sort of, you know, people who want to be contrarian being contrarian. I think we just have to sort of check our confirmation bias here, folks. Like if you find yourself really wanting to consume lots of information about how the vaccines could be dangerous, just ask yourself why. What is the anti-establishment motivation that's going on here? And are you pecking yourself around like a little hen trying to search for nuggets in the dust, trying to find things that reinforce what you already believe? I get that many of us are frustrated with how long this is going on for, frustrated with lockdowns, angry at misinformation, at toing and froing about masks and the utility of various policies. I understand that people are suspicious of drug companies and bureaucrats. I understand that we're excited by the democratization of information. But all of those instincts can conspire to make us somewhat gullible towards alternative explanations. And just ask yourself if you might be giving a bit too much weight to outlier studies and outlier experts that buck the mainstream narrative. You know, it, we, we may just want to check ourselves here. Last point before I get to David Frum, uh, the term alt-right. I mentioned briefly on uh, Joe Rogan's show, I uh, called Tim Pool uh, alt-right. I was just sort of saying, you know, these alt-right agitators on the uh, who are on Twitter saying that if you don't agree that Australia is running concentration camps and that it is sliding into authoritarianism, that it's an irredeemably fascist country, then we have nothing to talk about. There's nothing, you know, you have to, the starting point has to be that Australia has fallen. And then once, once I have suitably genuflected about the, uh, the end of Australian democracy and the end of, uh, end of liberalism in Australia, then we can start having a conversation about how to redeem ourselves. Uh, I call that sort of behavior alt-right behavior. I call an uncompromising, uh, irrational, clickbaity attitude towards discourse alt-right. It's been pointed out many times. In fact, Joe Rogan pointed out in real time um, that Tim Pool is not right-wing. 
yeah, I didn't say it was right wing. For me, alt right is not. Maybe I'm using the term differently, but I think it's a useful, a uh, useful phrase to use. It doesn't mean right wing. I use it to mean a a fake news obsessed, anti-establishment troll who whips up followers by showing you very in a very performative fashion how he's angrier about tyranny than you are, than you the sheeple are. Um, alt right doesn't mean a right wing person. They can be a, an Occupy Wall Street person. They can be left wing. Uh, then they're, they're not necessarily a member of the Republican Party. They are a keyboard warrior. They are a, a person who who cares more about spraying clickbait that rails against the lamestream media than about seeking wisdom through conversation. So that you don't have to accept that definition. But if you if if Tim is going to dodge the punch, uh, then he needs to disprove the behaviour that I'm des- describing. Uh, and uh, demonstrate that that is not what he is. Um, another aside, I did not call Majid Nawaz alt-right. I don't think he is. Uh, I said I included him in reference to uh, some tweets that he'd made where I feel he was overly gullible in um, in retweeting some Australian dissident uh, voices about what was going on in the Northern Territory with, Territory with Indigenous communities. Um, and I, I granted at the time that that might have just been a, a fact-checking mistake. And I will t- I will retweet a great article. If you are interested in what was going on in the Northern Territory uh, with Indigenous communities being forcibly rounded up and incarcerated uh, and the calls that uh, that Marjorie had amplified to have Amnesty look into this, uh, then I'll retweet on my Twitter thread uh, an article by a Northern Territory journalist uh, about about that, but uh, all of that's a long roundabout way of saying that I, I don't include Marjorie in the uh, in the bad faith uh, cluster of actors who I who I call alt right, regardless of whether or not they think of themselves as right wing or left wing. Um, and the last point I'd make is that it's important to remember that I've been very critical of Australian overreach over the course of this uh, pandemic. I mean, I wrote a piece in the main Australian Sydney newspaper in December, uh, calling for a calmer conversation about human rights here. There are simply degrees of inaccuracy about all of this, ranging from, you know, high-level hysterical shit-stirring from American alt-right agitators to people who are just honestly baffled by police brutality in Australia. And I hate those instances of police brutality as well. I hate those videos of the police, you know, fining grandmas for not obeying mask mandates and so on. It's awful. It's silly. It's stupid. I hate that stuff. Uh, so, you know, the, the best the best way to undermine it is to support rational, critical voices like mine. And the best way to perpetuate brutality and authoritarianism to the extent that it exists is to embolden voices like Tim Pool's, which require you to subscribe to an extremist binary that just allows the people who we all disagree with to get, aw- to get away with discrediting everybody on the reasonable side. You know, the, the the easiest way to perpetuate a bad policy is to give the people behind that bad policy an easy, uh, an easy tool to discredit you. And, you know, Australian policymakers who just want ever more closed borders and ever more punitive, uh, aggressive anti-COVID measures that infringe on people's human rights, those policymakers can just say, Look, anyone who opposes our policies just is 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 a crazy person who thinks that Australia is a fascist state for enacting emergency powers during a public health emergency. Uh, you know these people are not credible. 
So thanks a lot, Tim Pool and all such people for undermining the credibility of rational critics like myself and making it much, much harder for Australians to be free. Um, last, oh yes, also, um, Tim's welcome to come on this show anytime the invitation stands. I invited him on this show. He declined and invited me on his show. I said yes. His producer said, told my producer, uh, it has to be in person. My producer said, well, Josh is in Australia, so he's not going to come back to America for it. Uh, but let's go back to the original plan and Tim can come on this show. And then they went, there was radio silence. So don't know if it's uh, cowardice, disorganization, uh, whatever, but uh, the invitation stands to come on this show and sort it out. That invitation has not yet been accepted. I hope you enjoy uh, this show, and I hope that this is the last that we talk about all of this uh, nonsense. It's a it's a storm in a teacup, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, New South Wales, uh, the most populous state in Australia, where I live, is uh, essentially completely open, uh, with the exception of a few rules against like group singing and dancing at nightclubs and so on. Um, you can do whatever you want. There are rules against uh, unvaccinated people coming into the country with into the state without uh, isolating. But uh, if you're vaxxed, then uh, we are open for business, baby, and uh, coming and going as we please. It's not a perfect situation. It's not without, uh, uh, it's, not without its problems. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, all this hand-wringing about, you know, who did what right and who did what wrong in the pandemic is a historical question now and is, uh, is decreasingly a relevant one to actually be focusing on. So let's focus on some more important things such as this conversation, which I hope you will enjoy. Man, I did, with the one and only David Trump. I'm interested at this point in asking people about their experience during the pandemic. Where have you been for the past two years and how did that, how was that? I have to confess, I, I have had quite an easy pandemic, and I am a little uh, guilty about it. As far as um, pandemics but, go. Yeah. Um, so uh, early in the pandemic, um, there, there, David Geffen uh, posted an image of himself on aboard some yacht. Yes. He got a lot of blowback from that. <laughs> I remember but, that. But my view is that the world is not divided between David Geffen and you. It's divided between those with small children and those who don't. And those of us who don't have small children at home have much more in common with David Geffen than we do with anybody on the, on the small children side of the line. My heart breaks for them. As the, so, fa- as the father of four-year-old twins, I uh, wholeheartedly concur okay. with this worldview. Okay. So, so uh, my children are grown. And so um, they came back home during uh, COVID. They cooked for us. <laughs> they were entertaining and amusing company for us. <laughs> they staffed the yacht. They brought around the hors and the canapes. Yeah, so it was it was it was a very different thing from from then from your experience. Yeah, um, although I, uh, I must say I also feel somewhat uh, somewhat grateful that I don't have school age kids. I think I somewhat dodged yes. a bullet by having uh, two year olds, three year olds, and four year olds over the course of the the pandemic, yes. who really don't know what's happening. And you know, it's it's annoying for us, but we can still go to parks and play in rock pools and go to beaches and and whatnot. At least we have been able to in Australia. Uh, I, I think if you had a 15-year-old or an 8-year-old, you'd right. probably get hit the worst. It, it, it's been so tough on children, the parents of children, on young people. Um, but, you know, um, uh, we've got a comfortable house. Um, uh, I'm 
uh, trapped in it with someone I like a lot. Um, <laughs> we don't have we we don't have small children, um, so I I have to say I just I take my hat off to every and we didn't get sick, and so I take my hat off to everyone who's had a tougher time. I know that's many many people. Mm. When you speaking about kids, does that shape the way that you think about the pandemic response? I mean, there's been a lot of uh, a lot of brouhaha between Australia and the states, between zero COVID countries like New Zealand and jurisdictions like Western Australia and Taiwan and Hong Kong versus the more letter-rip policies of the UK and the US. And one thing that I tend to point out to uh, American critics of the zero COVID policy is that it, it has actually allowed a lot less futzing around with children than the mm-hmm. scenarios in which there is rampant widespread uh, contagion that has led to long school closures and masking of kids and so on, uh, you know, touch wood, it's generally been the case that schools have been open uh, in the places that were a little bit more, uh, let's say, quote unquote, authoritarian about forcing people not to transmit the pathogen. Where are you on all that? I've tried not to have too many opinions about about COVID, actually. Um, and uh, um, I... I have just, I've deferred to um, the best scientific authority. I have been unshocked that the best scientific authority um, has different views at different times. That's the scientific enterprise. Um, I, I've, I've tried to, I've, I've had some of my own judgment. I've, tr- I've tried to, I've tried to be a good citizen first. So even, uh, um, even when some, I encounter a rule that seems to me maybe silly, um, I go along with it if most of the people around me seem to think it's a good idea. Um, and I, I just, I, I think that I, everyone's been under a lot of pressure, so I know we're all kind of testy, but I really think that easygoingness is an important part um, uh, of getting through a thing like this. Um, my my wife's family, you and I were talking about this just before, my wife comes from a military family and and in both the Australian and the Canadian forces. And um, my um, her, her late stepfather, my father-in-law, he served in both Korea and World War II. And when he, he, he would say, you know, it's the most important quality in a soldier. And you, he, you expect the answer, courage. And he'd always say, cheerfulness. Cheerfulness <laughs> is the most important quality in a soldier. Right. And, and, and I think that's how you get through things. Um, just, just be cheerful. Um, and so, you know, uh, I, I'm a little, I've been a little horrified, <laughs> but even more amazed by the ability of people to have these culture war arguments over um, how do you fight a, a pandemic? Exactly the kind of thing where you just say, I want to say, you know, um, all those people who actually completed the biology courses that I didn't take and went on actually maybe even to excel at the subject, we should listen to them. What about the argument that it's all very well to be cheerful and easygoing, but if you're cheerful and easygoing while people are leading you towards tyranny, misinformation, uh, and control, then you're asleep at the wheel. And uh, your your forefathers and mine who were uh, in Europe during World War II or, uh, or before... You know, my my grandmother was not cheerful and easygoing when she was rounded up by the uh, the, the French collaborationist uh, Nazi allied police in Paris, and instead escaped from the jail and fled as far <laughs> as she could to Australia. You know, because there is this worldview that like this is a moment at which power is being oh. sort of seized by authority. Don't be such a fucking self-aggrandizing baby, <laughs> is what I would say to people like that. Really, really. Yeah. Well, my, my, my soup isn't as warm as I'd like it. It's just like the Holocaust. Um, no, <laughs> quit annexing. Quit, quit annexing um, the horrors 
uh, of the 20th century that have been so real and so vivid. Just be grateful. Be, be grateful that the worst problem you have is 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 this one, and and it's a bad enough problem. I don't want to minimize it, but um, but you 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 just have the sense to understand the difference between rules that are maybe excessively bureaucratic, or um, you know that many of the rules, many of them, are going to turn out to be ill judged. Um, that it turns out we you will know that as we've seen that people knew more in June of 2020 than they did in uh, January and February and knew more later. Um, and, and yeah, some of the rules were ill judged. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and it, it absolutely, if, if rules are excessive and pedophaging and bureaucratic and unnecessary, um, raise fuss about them, but just understand that it, it, it's not like, it's not tyranny. It's just bureaucracy. Mm. Um, and it, and it's not, um, it's not like you're right. You're, 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 it's annoying, but it's not oppressive. And have just have some perspective, and maybe that's something we uh, we we really need. It sounds like you've been spying on my Twitter conversations with uh, with Tim Pool no. and other sort of uh, agitators <laughs> in the American. I, I did check. <laughs> I did, and look, and look, I I get that Australia had an especially stringent approach um, to the pandemic, and and I I, I can imagine that it was um, annoying, and that a lot of it probably was excessive. And I can see why people are mad about that. Those are, you know, I don't want to diminish any of that. I just, just knock off the self-aggrandizing comparisons. They mm. are, they, uh, I, I would say the people who make them are in most cases um, too ignorant to be offensive. Um, but if they were a little less ignorant, they would be, because it's the only history they know. So they, they can't, they, there's nothing else they have to compare it to. Right. Um, but, uh, but really, yeah. Really. I, I mean, I try to give them a pass on the basis of ignorance as well, because I, at least, that's the most charitable interpretation of what they're doing. Um, I mean, the you know the retort there, and this can this can sort of bring us to your broader political um, philosophy. The retort from the people who are very very agitated about government overreach yeah. during the pandemic in places like Australia is uh, sure it might just be a bureaucratic uh, and a bureaucratic annoyance now. Even things as extreme, for example, as being essentially incarcerated in a hotel for two weeks by the Australian uh, mm. government because you are a close contact of uh, of a, yeah. a person who has coronavirus in a jurisdiction where there is no coronavirus and low rates of vaccination and you know first nations or indigenous communities or something like that like that is a that is a genuine infringement on a person's yeah. you know right to liberty to lock them up for two weeks uh, the but the 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 extra step that the people who I get into arguments with in the states take is that what I'm not seeing is that this is the thin edge of the wedge. What I'm not seeing is that yeah. these hotels will never go away. What I'm not seeing is that these quarantine facilities are actually concentration camps where right now it's the person who was a close contact of a coronavirus patient, but tomorrow it'll be the person who chooses yeah. to be unvaccinated, and the next day it'll be people who disagree politically with the Australian government. Now, I see no evidence of that as someone who's sort of broadly, progressively, libertarianly sort of centrist. Uh, I just sort of think, you know, you do, ex you take extreme measures when you need to take extreme measures because there's a public health emergency. And then as New South Wales has done over the past two months, the, the most populous state in Australia, you unwind those measures and you let Omicron rip because you've reached a, a level of vaccination and, and hospital capacity that you're comfortable with. And you go, we're not going to live in a an authoritarian regime forever. We're a liberal democracy. So let's go. Now is the moment to, to pull the trigger. It, it strikes me that 
these people are continually rebuffed by reality in their fears that authoritarianism is just around the corner. Yet that fear strikes me as quite common on the right, and I wonder whether you share it or whether you shared it, not in the context of the pandemic, but in the context of government, qua government. A a stop sign is not the first step on the slippery slope toward the total abolition of motion. (laughs) You know, that that there... We're, reason, we're, we're reasoning people who live in a democracy who are coping with um, a new problem. And, uh, and, then, and we're having real battles and they're about how risk averse to be. And uh, I'm not saying that, and, and many of the things, and I think when we look back on it, we'll discover that some jurisdictions may have been too risk averse um, and that, that money was wasted. And, and, a lot, and, and the thing that, that, of course, we, I will, I think, ultimately worry about the most is the damage to the education. Mm. Of children at impressionable years, and that and that that's going to be a, a huge debate whether whether we did too much about that. So I'm not saying everything was right. I'm just saying that, that uh, the governments have been run by people of goodwill, um, people trying to do the best job they can within constraints, with terribly imperfect information, um, under a lot of conflicting public pressures, um, and uh, that they they've. There's been no malice here. Um, there have been, there, I'm sure, lots of mistakes, but there's been no malice. And the idea that everything is the first step on this, that 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 human human beings cannot say um, draw distinctions. I was trained as a lawyer. The whole point of law is to draw distinctions, and distinctions are often arbitrary. And one last thing about about politics. So, um, I, I came of age in the late 1970s, and that was a very formative period of my political life. The story of the, the, what I saw in the world when I was becoming politically aware was a world that was, and not just in the United States and Canada where I was born, but in country after country, that was dismantling the uh, restrictions left over from the Great Depression and World War II. Um, and uh, many of the, some of these restrictions had been silly when they were put in place. Some of them were necessary. Uh, m- most of them lasted longer than they should. Uh, but um, it was... It, it was not going to be true forever. I mean, so long as you have a democratic government, you have the ability to correct excessive regulations. And so, um, you know, uh, it took the British a long time to repeal their World War pub licensing hour rules, but they did. <laughs> it's still hard to get a beer in London after midnight, I tell you what. But uh, yes, yeah, but it used to be hard. It used to be you couldn't get one in the afternoon. But, um that, that, that what they had these rules left over from the First World War where they closed the pubs during what should have been factory working hours. So the idea was you could go to the pub at lunch and have your pub lunch. But then, you know, when, whenever they were supposed to blow the factory whistle, the pubs all closed and they then didn't reopen until, right. the, until the factories were. And that lasted until, I think, the Thatcher era. Okay, so time to get that. that should have, they probably should have gotten rid of that in the 50s instead of in the 70s. Mm. Um, but that wasn't because the British government was proceeding along a premeditated plan to abolish pubs altogether and like slicing away an hour a year. Mm, mm. <laughs> it was they had done something in 1917 that seemed like a good idea at the time, and then they found it hard to change course. And that will be our real problem. That we have built many bureaucracies to fight COVID, and it will be hard to dismantle them. That's going to be an authentic. I mean, problem. yeah, that. That's but just, it. but just, just don't be. Just understand what the what the real problems of bureaucracy are, because those are difficult enough without inventing the imaginary po- po- uh, problems of you know it's going to be Logan's Run and they're going to kill everybody at thirty. <laughs> so let's yeah, so let's take the, the let's pivot then from the uh, from the extreme hysterical trolls. 
uh, to the my you know my reasonable friends. I never would have thought that in a conversation with David Frum, I'd feel like the conservative. But here, I feel a bit like the conservative who says, "Yeah, even if it's not a willing." Uh, path toward well, a willing road to serfdom, to 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 quote a great uh, great thinker. Mm. Even if it's just the gradual accidental accretion of power that then becomes self perpetuating. We've seen time and again yeah. from the war on terror, you know, to to uh, the powers that governments will will take. It's very very difficult to unwind. You often do need a Reagan or a Thatcher or someone like that to do that, and it, and that is politically and electorally difficult. The the tendency of government is to turn everything into the DMV and everything into the postal service. Government doesn't work very well. Make it small. Is am I articulating something that motivated yeah, you? No, why, I, why are you a conservative? Yeah, I, yeah. I I think I, I agree with all of that, um, or most of it. But I, what I would say is that means you have to understand that the pro- the problem is the problem with maintaining good government in a free society, it's much more like taking care of the lawn than it is like dealing with the invading Visigoths. So, you know, you, you just need to make constant micro judgments about when do you cut the grass? Um, you know, when do you weed? Um, what, what uh, you know, you, you want, you don't want to keep everything perfect. You want to have a little bit of chaos, but too much. And, and so that's a, that's a problem. It's always a problem with any kind of controls. I mean, when do you, um, you're, you know, you're, you're always engaged in, a struggle where sometimes controls are growing and then sometimes they need to be shrunk and sometimes you shrink them too much and you realize that was a mistake. I mean, one of the things that I, I've lived through, um, so the great era in all the democracies of decontrol was the period from the middle 70s to the early 80s. And the first things that were decontrolled in the United States, but in other countries too, were transportation, shipping, airlines, trucking, all of that had been controlled from, during the depression of the war. And we decontrolled all of those things. And it was a spectacular success and just it's, it's improved our lives in so many ways I, I could go on and on about it and then the next thing that happened was we had this, this these energy problems in the 70s that, that trace back to controls on the price of oil and natural gas and those were decontrolled and that was a tremendous success and uh, it ended the shortages that brought up forth new supply and and people of my age who were my generation or a little older people had a little bit more power said okay well decontrolling transportation worked and decontrolling energy worked Let's decontrol finance and let's de- uh, deconstruct all the controls uh, that were put in place during the Great Depression that separated banking from investment banking and investment banking from insurance. And that was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> and the point is not that, that that proved that decontrolling was wrong or that uh, or that the early success proved that decontrolling was up. The point was that decontrolling some things was good and decontrolling other things was bad. And sometimes you learn painfully. It's good if you can anticipate, but that's not always possible. Um, and and the, the task of politics, the thing that makes um, uh, the, the thing that makes politics so incredibly difficult um, is it's a series of, of constantly making these estimated judgments with imperfect information and 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 moving things along. And the and, and the problem I think and COVID, the reactions on people to COVID has exposed this, is they have fundamentally anti-political minds. That, that what they see is that the world is like it's like Dr. Frankenstein's huge switch, and when you pull it down, you're in total darkness. And if you push it up, you've got you know enough electricity to reanimate a corpse. Mm. It's a down or up. That's it. Mm. Two positions, and that's not how it works. There are there are just millions of uh, constantly millions of choices, and we're always approximating, and they're often imperfect. And that is the conservative point of view is to understand that. Politics is a very approximate business, and 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 you can get 
quite a lot of things wrong in a good society without it ceasing to be a good society. Mm, that's interesting. It's a yes. It's an incremental question, isn't it? Governance. Uh, this you're reminding me a bit of this argument about whether or not Australia's quarantine facilities are quote unquote concentration camps, which certain people insist that I call them. To which I say, well, I mean, if you want to call it a concentration camp, then we can have a semantic quibble. But like, let's actually talk about the underlying question of when it is and is not appropriate to quarantine individuals. Like, how bad the pathogen would have to be? Because I can, I'm sure I can invent a thought scenario in which Ebola breaks out in Alaska and you don't want it to get to mainland United States and so you invoke some kind of quarantine, then if you're in support of that, then we all agree that concentration camps are good in some circumstances and then let's just figure out exactly when uh, and the critique of Australia becomes... No, let's, let's, not, let's not give them the other note. Obviously, it's a total drag to be confined to a hotel room for two weeks. I wouldn't like it at all. Question, does it have pillows? Yes. <laughs> does it it's have not a free, concentration camp. Does it have free camp? Netflix, free Wi-Fi, quite good catering for three yeah. meals a week? Yeah. Uh, but like, like the thing about talking to anyone who's over 14 years old is you should be able to understand the difference between something being kind of a drag and something being a concentration camp. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I, like, are you a teenager? Like, really? Mm. A lot of things are tough. You know, yeah, it's it's a drag. It's a drag. And, and maybe, and, and it's worse than a drag if later on, um, it turns out, you know, this was excessive and some things that were done that were not necessary. I think it's not only a drag, it's a waste of my time. And I hated that. that but I, I did have pillows. Yeah, okay? I did so have pillows. Not, and and let's, the, keep it, I mean, let's keep it in perspective. I think the other thing that people that people hate about it is anytime you're interfacing with government bureaucracy and there are rules that have to be enforced, the rules seem arbitrary at the edges. Like there are videos that have gone viral of, uh, you know, a, a woman who was a sort of anti, a very a great um, opponent of Australia's policies, who was uh, in at Howard Springs, which is this quarantine, these quarantine bungalows out in uh, near near Darwin in the Northern Territory. And she's on her balcony and she's saying, she's arguing with one of the, the health workers who's in protective gear about why she can't, if she's outside, why she can't cross this line that is demarcating her bungalow yeah. from the bungalow next door. And of course, it sounds horrendous to be told that you can't cross this line like who gives a shit whether you cross the line like what right. what difference is it going to make if you cross the line and all government rules are like that like what difference does it make whether i take this yeah. stupid liquids onto the plane in 100 mil you know right. think bottles right. or 200 mil bottles we all know it's stupid and yet that is like that is how rules function <laughs> and if rules are going to operate at all then they do have to be enforced at some point annoying as it might be. Um, on this question of incrementalism versus the the sort of 14-year-old's immature attitude towards political science where there, there's an on and off switch between tyranny and, and non-tyranny, I'm interested in that because your role, let's get to your political career here. I mean, the, the administration that you were a part of, the, the first uh, Bush administration, that is regarded as being one of the Republican administrations that was quite binary in its outlook, um, perhaps with good reason since 9-11 happened. Uh, but this was, not, uh, this was not your grandfather's Republican administration with very yeah. cautious, incremental ideas about the world. This was a, a, a worldview that you helped to foster in that White House, which was there are good guys and bad guys and we are in an existential yeah. fight. How do you place that now? Yeah, um, uh I always have um, uh, sort of a, a cross imperatives when I talk about the Bush administration because um, 
uh, on the one hand, I'm certainly honored to have had the chance to serve it. Um, and um, I respect my colleagues and I want to champion their work. So I speak up for them. On the other hand, um, there is a tendency, I see this a lot on Twitter, to make it seem like it was me, George, me, Dick Cheney and George Bush in the room. And so I, I don't want to say anything that disavows responsibility, but I also need to keep in perspective my my role in the scheme of things in that administration. So um, not everything that the Bush administration did, they did, I agreed with, not everything they did, and very little of what they did, they did because of me. You weren't the puppet um, master behind the strings uh, pulling no, it, Dick it, Cheney's I, I, I'm sometimes, I, I'm sometimes, you know, uh, there's a line of Abraham Lincoln's um, about the man who's written, tarred, feathered, and ridden out of town on on a rail. And uh, he says afterwards, reflecting on the experience, if it weren't for the honor of the thing, I'd rather have walked. Um, so, <laughs> so, so I, I I I read about myself on Twitter, and I think I mean there are a lot of there's actually a weird kind of you know compliment to me. So I'm not going to disavow it. What I was just, your job title, David? I, what, how were you brought in? What, well, what what job were you offered technically? So I, I will tell you the job, but I need to introduce by pointing out that in Washington, there's a rule, the longer your title, the less important your job. And the shorter your title, the more important your job. So POTUS. president. Yeah, right. POTUS, right. President is more important than chief of staff. I was special assistant to the president for economic speech writing. <laughs> is it true or apocryphal that you came up with the term axis of evil in, in the State of the Union? It's it's both um, because look writing for writing as writing any presidential speech but especially State of the Union it's like writing the script for Transformers Four. It they don't exactly have authors they have committees of authorship, um, and so uh, so parts of that speech came out of things I wrote, um, including that section. Um, but it's not like I wrote it and in it went. I, I wrote it and it went into a committee and sure. there's another committee. And and so, so you know, I, I, I would say I, I, I take responsibility without taking credit. Um, right. And, and uh, because you have, I have to be realistic about this. But about the binary, yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, that, that's, um, and one of the things where the Bush administration got, I think, into some trouble with the judgment of history is they didn't act in a binary way, but they spoke in a binary way. And that created, that just created a lot of polemical possibilities. Well, wasn't, so, inva wasn't know, invading a country that didn't have anything to do with the, the attack acting in a binary way in the sense that it had a let me give you a more modest worldview? And before getting to that one, let me give you a more modest example, and then we'll build to, to, to the most controversial. President Bush said, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. And he said, okay. Uh, so what about General Musharraf in Pakistan? He's sort of both. And they were able to say, yeah, okay, you know what, as a functional, you know, we will say, and this is this is the mismatch, they would say you're with us or you're with the terrorists. But then there was a lot of room for the Musharrafs of this world. They would deal with him and know he's sort of with us and he's sort of, and he's sort of with the terrorists. Mm. So, um, so I, I think in general, one of the things, there's always an argument inside administrations between more idealistic and less idealistic people do you say noble words and try to bring the actions into line with the words, or do you accept what the actions are going to be and then try to bring uh, the words into line with the action? And my preference would be the second, but my job was the first. Right. Um, my job, I, the only thing I had any control over was, uh, was the words. And because of the um, intense emotions of the time, yeah, I think uh, the words tended to get hot, but it's a little bit like what happens with COVID now, is if the words hadn't been hot, we would have been in terrible, the country was hot and yeah. it wanted hot words. And so it, 
politicians don't get to govern exactly the way they think they do. Um, you know, with Iraq, um, yeah, there's, there, you know, I've written about this, there, that a lot of things went terribly wrong with that decision-making process. I mean, and the most important part was is that they never united the means to the end. So we never understood, you never had the meeting where they said, look, this is what is, is involved. This is what it's going to cost realistically. And we're, we're going to take the best advice, not wishful thinking. Is it worth it? My conversation, as far as I know, never happened. In fact, it's very hard to pr- identify the moment where the decision to war was made. I was just writing about this this week for The Atlantic because we're coming toward the 20th anniversary of the Axis of Evil Speech, which was at the end of January of 2002. Um, that the subjective experience of being in that administration was for the longest time, the decision about Iraq was in the future. And you say, well, if we do it, how, what should we do? And when we worked on the Axis of Evil Speech, that was the question. If the president is going to talk about Iraq, what's some language he might say? So you didn't write a speech about going to war with Iraq. You wrote, now he could say this, he could say, I wrote, and I wrote so many different things. He could take this approach, he could take that approach. Here are some things he could say if this is his decision. But it was conditional, it was in the future. And then there came a moment when it was in the past mm. that the decision had been made. But uh, historians have gone through this. You can't find the moment where it was in the present, where they went round the table and said, go, no, go. And that's, I think, one of the reasons that the war delivered such disappointing results is I mean, um, it's sort it, of, it, that it didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't really argued through. It's sort go, of in, in, no, go, here's the cost. It's infuriating as a, as a member of the demos to, to hear that and think about that in the sense that. There were people, I mean, you and I could easily, find, it would take us five minutes to find a hundred different names of people in Washington who were screaming from the rooftops, uh, trying to articulate the the position that you're saying never got articulated in any meeting in the White House, that, that there are, you know, let's be realistic about the costs. I mean, I remember, you know, I was I was at university, but I, I remember the, the opinion articles being written about what the cost was going to be. I remember actually being interviewed at the time on, a, I was on a panel uh, on a radio show, and I was saying that I would support the war if I could see a trillion dollar Marshall Plan uh, on the table, uh, but I can't support it in you know because of the chaos that it mm-hmm. might produce. And I was just an idiot. I was just a young idiot. Like the the idea that that didn't filter through can only be because the White House didn't want it to, and that decision that you're saying never got made had been made in within the the craniums of the people in the white house uh, long before it should have been made and outside and of had, any due process made, and i think one of the problems it had been made back in the 1990s when and this takes there's a long history here which is um saddam hussein had been a problem for a long time um and and, and i think there are a lot of people who thought if there's ever a chance to do anything we should do it mm. and then comes 9 11 and people, okay, here's our chance. And and they didn't absorb enough. Look, this is a world-changing event. Um, and you need to take out some clean pieces of paper and, and start your thinking process all over again. Um, so I think there are, there are a lot of, um, but as a, if we're going to not be binary, it also needs to be said, look, um, Saddam Hussein was also an incredibly oppressive and dangerous person um, who, uh, who um, had plunged into, who had started, major wars against his neighbors and he was he was a bad risk calculator and he um and he was a real global security challenge maybe not the most important one that the world faced but there is a kind of tendency now to say oh well if if only things things had been left alone if if 
we have in Syria a model of what happens when those kinds of dictatorships eventually collapse of their own weight. Um, so it wasn't like there was some, you know, that, that was the most likely alternative future for Iraq is that the Saddam Hussein regime would have collapsed of its own weight, unleashing the kind of chaos a few years earlier, perhaps, that, that um, came to it eventually and that would be more like the situation that we saw in Syria. Um, so it's, it, it's, it, it remains, to my mind, a very hard call about what was, um, um, how, how to think about it and, and, and what to say about it. And what we can now see is that, ironically, is that in Iraq at this point, American policy looks a lot more successful than it did in Afghanistan, which is the war that everybody said at the time was the good war where all the resources should go. Right. But I mean, that may be partly because all of the resources were withdrawn from Afghanistan in order to focus on Iraq. And if there'd been some more nation building, I mean, who knows what would have happened in Afghanistan? Are you a fatalist about about that venture necessarily having failed? I I am a fatalist about it. And um, I think one of the things um, I I remember very keenly is one of the reasons I was and I was much more in favor of Iraq was was I knew the administration was going to do things. And Iraq seemed to me a better bet than Af- Afghanistan always seemed to me a hopeless proposition um, that you couldn't modernize it and that it was very important not to get trapped there. And there's, there's one other matter involving Afghanistan, and that takes us up to the crisis of the present. Remember, Afghanistan is landlocked and Western armies are, use a lot of supplies. So if you're going to keep an American and allied coalition force in the field, living the way coalition forces do, using the fuel they do and the weaponry they do, there are two ways to supply that army. One is by truck through Pakistan and the other is by railway through Russia. So whatever, if you have more than, in the first month of the war when there were like a couple hundred special forces operators in Afghanistan, you could do it by air. But once you had a big presence, you were uh, the Western coalition was going to be hostage to either Pakistan or Russia or both. And mm-hmm. that always struck me as, I, I remember confronting this, I made two visits to Afghanistan, um, not at the very beginning, but you know, in the earlier part of the 2000s. And, and this was just so impressed on me that everything you touched had come either via Pakistan or via Russia. And this was untenable. Um, and it just, and I became convinced then um, I, but I, I was, and I was writing about this, that, that America's overinvested, overcommitted to Afghanistan, and it will never have any freedom in its foreign policy against too much bigger problems, Russia and Pakistan, so long as it's got this large force based in Afghanistan. Why are you a conservative, David? Um, well, according, if you listen to a lot of people in the United States now, I, I've been booted from the club. Um, <laughs> You're a cuck. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, I, I don't use, I now say I am conservative. I'm a conservative-minded person. But if to the extent that conservatism means belonging to a movement, I mean, I resisted this except for a long time, but I have to accept I, I probably don't. That the, the, both the movement has changed and I have changed and um, that the things that most people who are agreed to be conservatives now would stand for, I, I don't. But when I came in, I, I came in, um, uh, I... I probably was formed by um, family memories of the totalitarian struggles of the middle 20th century. Um, I believed in um, world peace kept by um, Western power, especially American power. I believed in free enterprise and free trade. Um, I believed in knitting together the democracies and ever closer uh, connection. Um, uh, I, I was very opposed to big social experiments, especially in the economy and uh, attempts to use state power to accelerate social development. I believe you should let things grow on their own terms. 
Um, so those were those were things that in the late seventies and early eighties pulled me into Republican and conservative politics. Um, uh, today, um, many of the things that I then believed in and still believe in are are um, intensely rejected by the conservative world. And meanwhile, I think I I have changed in some ways in that um, I am even more cautious about big projects uh, than than I was before, and um, uh, even more insistent on the importance of social peace. Um, so I, when people say I'm going to take my rifle and, and, uh, to the ballot, I mean, I, that make me, makes me crazy. I just find that utterly unacceptable. Um, and I, I, uh, have a lot of respect for knowledge and expertise in politics, which in the world of Donald Trump, um, that, that is, yeah, that disqualifies you right there. Mm. When you say it, it drives you crazy when people say they're going to take their rifle to the ballot box, are you speaking literally about gun rights? I speak that people um, in the United States literally do take their, you, you have, we had a lot of this in 2016 where you see people who, um, we have rules about uh, balloting and you can only come so close, but there'll be people who will bring, bring weapons um, and who think weapons are an important part of politics. And, um, and I, Oh, I just, who, you mean not when they're voting, but you mean they'll stand by a ballot box with a weapon while other people vote? Yes. Yes. We have a lot of that. Wow. Um, What's, and, what do they and, think they're doing? Oh, they think they're protecting the voting system from... What from people yeah. who might be misusing fake IDs or something to to vote? Yeah, on. I, I I put a lot of sarcastic emphasis on the or something there. They that's not who they're protecting the ballot box from. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, it's extraordinary, isn't it? The yeah, I mean, I don't even know where to go. I don't even know whether to open the can of worms about guns. But why don't we just dip our toes toe into it for for two minutes? Because the it it, it may tease out something about libertarianism versus small c conservatism, um, in your mind. W you know, what are the what are the appropriate parameters of state control over weapons? Um, so, uh, I. To my way of thinking, one of the things that happens um, when you move from wildness to civilization um, is that people don't need to carry weapons around with them all the time. Um, that if you're in a dangerous situation, um, whether because the society is unsettled or because like people on the front lines in, in Ukraine facing a Russian invasion, that you, you have to, valid questions about your security, um, then it becomes both a right and a duty of the citizens to to prepare themselves. Um, and if authority breaks down, they, they're going to have to um, prepare themselves in whatever informal authority they can put together. But if you have the good fortune to live in a settled democracy where the courts are open, um, where your rights are protected, where the police are honest and come when called, uh, I, uh, and you don't live, and you're not living in a rural area protecting your chickens from the coyotes, you're actually contemplating using your weapon against a fellow, uh, using a weapon that is intended against fellow human beings. I think you really need to, to check yourself. You really need to check yourself. And I'm less interested in what the, the rules should be um, as to what, how people should think about this themselves. I mean, we, I, I, I collect, I've, I've written about this from time to time. I collect just, there are hundreds of terrible stories about Americans killing their children hurting themselves because they bought a weapon that they thought would protect the fa their family, that would make them a, a good husband, a good father. And they leave behind terrible tragedy, which if they had just been more realistic, didn't have to happen. 
I can hear Californian Republicans saying uh, that's all very nice from uh, from your cloistered uh, tower, <laughs> David Frum. But over here in California, there are people walking into WalMarts and just uh, carrying out shopping trolleys with uh, nine hundred dollars worth of goods, which apparently is now what you're allowed to steal without being prosecuted in uh, in California. Yeah. There are homeless people getting into drug induced fights all over the streets of uh, Venice Beach, and then I can hear the the left wing progressive woke person in my head also saying, yeah, it's all very nice to say that you live in a civilized society where police are honest and they come when they're called. Do you know how long it takes police to come when you're in New Orleans or the south side of Chicago? That's not the world that we live in. Yeah, okay. There's, I think there's, there's some truth to both of those points of view. Well, what I say? So what's the plan? You're, you're going, you and your friends are going to go to Target and start shooting shoplifters? Like, what's the plan? Um, you know, my plan is that you you and your friends get together and you um, elect some state legislators, legislators and a DA and you toss the shoplifters in jail where they belong. Um, and, and if they are aggressive and violent, you summon trained professionals who can control them, ideally without the loss of human life. Um, and let them do the job. But the, the, um, but the idea that you're going to, um, that you are going to be uh, like a figure in a Western confronting the Apaches, that you are going to be the killer yourself. Well, first, you're probably not. I mean, I, I think one of my replies to a lot of gun enthusiasts is, you're not as good a driver as you think you are. Your jokes aren't as funny as you think they are. And you're not as good with a gun as you're you think you are. You're probably not as good a lover as you think you are. We can uh, we can increase the I, I, list here as far as we want to go. <laughs> you probably so, don't make so eggnog just, as well as you think you do. Your French exactly, toast sucks. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh, I, I I like many. I, I I've um, been to gun ranges and I get pretty good scores, but never with someone you know, never with hundreds of weapons going off at the same time and people shooting back at me. I have no idea. I, I, I'm sure I'd miss everything, um, and so just. I don't understand what is being achieved here. And I, I agree. I mean, the, the, the breakdown of law and order in some of the cities of California, and by the way, where I live in Washington, D.C., we, we are having um, a carjacking a day, it seems. I mean, it, we, have, we have a real problem with, I don't want to minimize that, um, uh, but the, the, the way we meet criminality is with effective law enforcement, not with vigilantism. What do you make of the the cult? I mentioned woke there, which is a word that I try not to use, but it, it does. Uh, we all know what it's what it means at this point. Um, yeah. And as uh, I mean, in your capacity as a journalist, I mean, having been the editorial page editor of the Wall Street Journal during the, we haven't even gotten to that part of your career. But in case people are unaware, you uh, you, you ran the the opinion page of the the Wall Street Journal. Was that during Bush Senior's? administration oh, post yeah, Reagan. Yeah. Long, long, long ago. Yeah. I guess during the first, uh, Bush, first, yeah, first, first Bush. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. First Bush. Um, and you know, now you're at the, at the Atlantic and there has been this steady exodus of people leaving, uh, the storied institutions of American journalism from Andrew yeah. Sullivan to Barry Weiss and, uh, and others who feel that the climate has just become impossible to have the kinds of, I suppose, the kinds of conversations yeah. that I like to have on this podcast as well. And I'm constantly asked whether or not I'm on the precipice of being fired from my my, my yeah. role yeah. at a public broadcaster in Australia as, as well as a result of touching sensitive uh, topics. Is the situation as dire as some say, less dire? Where are you? Um, I... I, I... I think it's it's complicated. I mean, I look, it's clearly true that there are a lot of subjects that are important where there are two sides of the question or multiple sides of the question where it's harder to have an honest conversation than it was 20 years ago. 
um, I, I, you know, in, in Australia and in my native Canada, how you can talk about uh, the real problems of indigenous societies and the rights and wrongs of indigenous peoples. That, that's a harder, harder thing to talk honestly about than it used to be. Um, and that's a problem because you need, you need, uh, it makes it, it, it's like a self, self-blinding, a self-stupefying thing. If you say, we're going to just take all kinds, we're going to take all kinds of things that, that are true or arguably true, or there's evidence for, we're not sure whether they're true. And we're just going to say, you, you just, uh, this is what John Stuart Mill warned about a long time ago. If you start saying they're just, we're just going to take huge things that might be true, that people might want to say and forbid them to say it on the not by law, but through social sanction, you lose your job, you lose your friends. Can you, you just, just give some sh- some shape to the kind of huge things you're talking about? Because some people will be thinking, oh, but we talk much more about indigenous uh, problems okay, than, well, than we used to 20 uh, years ago. Let me use a Canadian example. So Canada has been um, rent by the discovery of, of graves in which um, students who had attended boarding schools um, had been buried after they died. Um, and um, and this has been presented as if this is something that has just been discovered that nobody knew about it, and that, that the, the, uh, these students were all victims of malicious destruction, um, and that uh, it, it implicated Canada in a form of genocide. Um, and in fact, these, these, these things have been known about for forever. Um, uh, the, the, the reason that, grave, for example, graves are described as unmarked, the reason they're unmarked is because um, th- these were often very rural places and the gravestones had disintegrated or fallen away. It wasn't that people had been tossed in the ground. It was the graves had been marked, but not marked in a way that met this, the, the passage of time over a century. Um, or, and, and the people were dying from, not because somebody was murdering them, but because of, uh, but because of diseases that were poorly understood that, um, where the medicines hadn't been invented yet. Um, and that doesn't make any of it less heartrending. And it doesn't mean that it, it makes it a good idea to take people who have poor disease resistance and who live in isolated places and to group them together in schools with hundreds of other people where once a disease gets in, it's going to have this terrible effect. But you, um, but you just, just need to not present this as, as a different thing from what it was. And if we talked about this in 1996, we could say all those things. And the things I've just said, if, I, I don't know if your show has listeners in Canada, but if it does, mm. I will be in a lot of trouble because you, you, you can't say that. Um, and there are many, many other examples. At the same time, and this is what is called wokeism, and I don't know exactly what it means. A lot of the things that they say are true. A lot of the things they say are important. And, uh, uh, um, and just as we make society dumber when we say there are things that you um, can't say because they're insufficient, sufficiently progressive. We also make society dumber when you say, you know, one of the things that there's a huge argument about is how integral was slavery to the development of the United States, not just after the creation of the, the, the independence and the writing of the constitution, but even before in the um, first centuries of American existence. And one of the things that the so-called wokes have been very insistent about is that slavery was absolutely, the country would not look the way it does. It wouldn't have developed the way it did without it. You cannot tell the story of America with slavery as a sidebar. It's integral. And I think they're right about that. Mm. And, and that's good knowledge to have. And, and everyone involved is dead. And that doesn't mean we have, so we're not going to be prosecuting people. But just if we want to know ourselves and know where we came from, we have to know that. Um, and, you know, in, in, in so many areas, like um, I, I think some of the woke, I mean, the Me Too episode is, has faded a little bit. But there too, you had a challenge of much of what happened in the name of Me Too was healthy. Um, was was a way of bringing a kind of 
if not justice exactly, wholeness to people who had been wronged. And then there are parts of it that were um, accusatory and due process was trampled. And I, I, I just want to go back to this incremental point that, that a lot of things can be true at the same time and things can be partially true. And some, one of the things that is hard for a certain type of mentality to deal with is the, the partial truth, the thing that, that contains some good and some bad, and you have to find some way to cull the good mm. from the bad. There's also a, there's a large missed opportunity at the moment, I think, in the pushback against what's being called wokeness in the sense that a lot of great minds are essentially just expending a huge amount of intellectual effort and time in saying, you're going too far here, you're being a little bit hysterical there, your emphasis is wrong right here. Uh, you know, I sort of have to keep checking myself as as well. And it's useful to hear you articulate what you just did and other people I respect, like Tyler, Tyler Cowan wrote a piece about wokeness saying, yeah, of course, it's going to be a little bit extreme. But, you know, overall, if you could, if you could nudge the entire planet to be 5% more woke, wouldn't that be a good thing? And if America's greatest uh, greatest ability is its culture is its ability to export its cultural norms and its memes, then isn't that a better meme to be exporting than any other crazy thing that people who go too far in their ideology might want to believe in, like QAnon or something? Yeah. And I, I don't want to. Yeah, I, I don't want to trample the like. What happens in some of the worst of these woke excesses is that individual people get trampled, and not the JK Rowlings who are billionaires and world famous and have movie deals. And I mean, I'm sure it's upsetting and, you know, very rich people also are entitled to be treated like people, but still she's got a certain amount of insulation, but there are lots of, of much smaller versions of her. Um, and people get, who get bullied and trampled and, and um, they're, they lose the ability to publish a book that is meaningful to them. And I, I, I never want to sacrifice the individual for some larger cause of social justice. The individual matters. So I'm not going to say that make we make the world 5% more woke. I'm just saying we can, we can learn from it while protecting individual people from, from false accusations. And, right. And but the, I mean, say, but maybe you can't. I mean, Cowan's point, I think, is that any, any, any almost revolutionary overhaul, and maybe that's anathema to the years of a, of a, a moderate incrementalist like you, but any, any real overhaul in the way that a culture thinks about itself is going to have people who get lined, innocent people getting lined up by the firing squad. And it, there just will be examples of, of that. If you try well, to shift from a, a, an environment in which it's normal for male employers to slap females on the ass and to call them toots to one in which that person is truly held accountable, there's going to have to be such a, a an uprising of female rage that you're going to have the Aziz Ansaris and the Louis CKs, whatever you think of them, getting caught in the in the firing line. Do you do you not believe that? That may happen, but we can we can as individuals in our own world we can uh, we can try for both, and we can say you know what this person um, had had their book book contract taken away for absurd reasons, and and yet I. I agree with you that certain kinds of language um, that once was common, probably we shouldn't write it now. But I want to say one more thing about the anti-woke, which is um, look, the, the, one of the main one of the things I've been really struck by is how many of the people who have identified themselves as anti-woke, who have made that really central to their ideology and their self-definition, have ended up in crazy places mm. on COVID and the vaccine. And it's it's not one or two people. I mean, it is many, many people, so much so you begin to think there is something going on here. And, and if you want to say, look, that, that one of the, the, um, the evils that maybe inheres in 
even the good parts of wokeism is this tendency to pile on and bullying and um, point making individual people carry the guilt of a whole society and um, humiliating them. That that if that somehow there's something inherent in this set, set of ideas that leads to that evil. I was well, what, what is there something in the anti wokeness that makes people and th- these are not unintelligent people we're talking mm. about. These are high, often high. Maybe they'd be in less trouble if they were less intelligent. Highly intelligent people end up in crazy places, and and I think the anti woke cause needs to think about that a little bit. Um, you know, is there something where when you say, um, "I'm a persecuted victim of an unjust society," and and everyone in a, in a university is my enemy, that you end up rejecting modern medicine? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, maybe. What, so, what's the common thread there? Is it an anti-elitism? Is it an anti-authoritarianism? A kind of uh, a sense of being a, an outsider, a renegade who speaks truth to power, and as a result of that binary worldview, you find yourself on the wrong side of medical science as well as the right side of a culture war. I'm not sure it's anti-elitism because a lot of the people involved here would think of themselves as much smarter um, than their detractors, um, and indeed that they think of themselves as so smart that whereas the, the people they dislike say, look, I'm only as good as the other 30 people in the lab. Yeah. <laughs> they say, no, I, I will be up alone at midnight uh, by myself with my test tubes and beakers and my open web browser. And I will do what teams of trained scientists and labs can do, cannot do. I will, I will see through, I'll pierce the falsehoods of the giant, you know, medical biological establishment. So it's, it's not, it's not anti-elitism. It's not driven by some sense of humility that other people are cleverer mm. than me and I don't. they're giving me a hard time. Um, I think there's a persecution complex. I think there's a, a belief that knowledge, that the truest knowledge is secret, that the, 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 things, that the things that most people agree on, those are false, and the things that most people reject, those must be true. There's something there. But I, I think there's just a sense of um, knowledge as warfare. Right. that maybe push people in this in this direction. On the question of the culture wars and wokeness and uh, the, the, the... So the Tyler Cowan and potentially partially David Frum uh, attitude that, the, that in general uh, movements like Me Too and movements like the racial reckoning around the recognition of slavery as fundamental to American history... Are uh, are useful, are salutary, and to whatever extent we can minimize their uh, their excesses in terms of uh, you know injuring individual hu- human lives. Uh, let's do it, but overall they're good. There's a another parallel, I suppose, interpretation of what's going on in culture at the moment, which I am not sure what to think of. Which is that. In actual fact, these are the movements that are largely dragging us back towards an identitarian way of thinking about each other that undermine our individual autonomy, that seek to group us in tribes that are eternally pitted against each other, especially racially, that require us to agree that white supremacy is so baked into the fabric of our thinking and our institutions that there's no way that we can escape it. So the correct uh, the correct sort of light on the hill to pursue is not a Martin Luther King Jr. We don't see color. We judge people on the content of their character, not the color of their skin, but rather uh, a recognition that the color of our skin is fundamental to who we are, always will be. And, uh, and you know, we should engage with each other on its basis. 
And so then that then that leaves me thinking, well, maybe it's not just about making sure that these movements don't break a few eggs on their path towards a, a better future. Maybe we do have to say, no, these things are sort of, you know, I suppose the, the way that a Jordan Peterson would articulate it would be to say they're kind of a neo-Marxist uh, identitarian uh, movement and we need to oppose them using the tools of Gandhi and Mandela and Martin Luther King, uh, which is egalitarianism and colorblindness, which sort of sounds very old, very stuffy in 1990s from this perspective. Do you see that those two alternatives? Well, um, I would throw one other one other thing in the mix. Um, you know, you have to be really really careful about generalizing about periods in time, but um, because you, what you end up usually just doing is projecting onto a whole period based on a few artists and writers and works of art. And um, that's, that said, I, I think there are periods where the prevailing style is sentimental and there are periods where the uh, prevailing style, style is sardonic. And the classic example of this is the move from the pre-World War I generation to the post-World War I generation, pre-World War I, very sentimental time, and post-World War I, much, much more hard-bitten. So I think we're living right now in a very sentimental time um, that um, the late, late Christopher Hitchens used to say when someone said to him, um, You're, you know, I find your words deeply offensive. He would say, I'm still waiting for you to make a point. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I miss Hitch. Uh, <laughs> I miss, uh, that, that his point was how you feel about it doesn't prove anything. So, so I think when you say what is you know what is the common denominator? And by the way, this is not just this is this is true on many parts of the right wing. I mean, we live at a time in which people will produce their feelings about something as um, as the most important fact about that something. So, when if people say, look, we need to have a much more sardonic uh, culture. We need to have one that um, that is much more committed to the truth value of things. Uh, one in which um, a statement about your emotions, your feelings of woundedness, that, that's not, I mean, to the people who love you, that's maybe important. Uh, but if we're not, you know, if, 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 if we're just, if we're, you know, in, engaged in intellectual life, it doesn't, it's not interesting. It's not important. In fact, it's something you, you, it's on you. It's your problem. If you are fine, you are so upset that you can't continue this discussion, you need to go to the bathroom and compose yourself and come back when you can con continue the discussion. Um, that part I think is, is right. Um, but, you know, if, if I'm asked to say, um, is, look, if, if I'm asked to believe, do, are we, is there some true person inside of me that is completely separate from everything that's contingent? You know, that you uh, you take away, you know, my ethnic identity, my religious affiliation, my sexual orientation, my, um, you know, uh, my uh, my class position. Um, you take away all those things and you get to like the pure me. Right? I, I don't that's like crazy. That's Plato beyond. That's crazy. I mean, that, I don't, there is no me beyond those things. I am, I am the, I am part of all of those things. So you can't say to people, when people say, um, it's terribly important to me to understand me, if you want to, that I'm black or female or gay or Jewish or straight or, um, born poor, born rich. Um, I mean, yeah, those, those probably are really important facts. And, um, and understanding those things about people can, can be, as any biographer will tell you, those, those are terribly enriching. We're not just bundles of ideas. Where do our ideas come from? And, and I do often note that the people who are most insistent on separating themselves from all these contingent aspects of their identities uh, so they can live in a world of pure reason 
are the most emotional people I know. Mm, <laughs> they are so wo easily wounded. They get upset so fast. And you think, you know what? Maybe the reason you want to separate yourself from all of these aspects of your humanity is because actually they, they are bigger for you than they are for other people. Don't you think, is it true that if you strip away all of your identities, there is nothing left inside? I mean, isn't part of the crisis of the current moment that we do lack an empathy between the tiny flickering candle of consciousness that religious people call a soul uh, and that secular people can just sort of understand as being a, a, a deep sense of unity between uh, between living creatures and especially between humans that like when we're bumping into each other as identities, when we're bumping into each other as tribes, when, you know, I'm sure you've had the experience. I've certainly had the experience as an interviewer where I'll be talking to somebody and I realize I'm not actually really talking to them. I'm sort of talking to some kind of avatar that they've come up with mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. identities that are stuck onto each other where they're responding in a pro forma way and they're expecting me to respond in a pro forma way. And if I blow up that script, which is my won't, then I get into all kinds of trouble or it goes viral in some way or, you know, and I'll have my lovers and I'll have my haters and I'll have to stay off social media for a few weeks because it'll be an absolute uh, shitstorm. And, and the, the accretion of these identities of these scripts on top of that flickering candle of soul is, is what I see as being one of the great impediments to us moving forward yeah. as, as common humans. So do, does that contradict what you're I, saying or is that consistent with it? No, I, no, you, you, it's, and, and it's beautifully said. Um, I, I think I agree with all of that. I, I, I don't think there's nothing there after you scrape everything away. I'm just saying that, the, that you, you can't scrape it away. Um, and, uh, because we, we, um, we're, we are physical creatures as well as we are physical creatures too. And it just in and inextricably, and it's, it's hard to know what, what we'd be, you know, like one of the things I think about a lot, I mean, I'm now over 60 and, um, people talk about, um, privileges of various kind. And, and I realized through my life, the most important privilege I have, and I've had, I have many, many privileges. The most important was for reasons, some arbitrary reason, I was dealt a very good health hand. I've, I've never spent a night of my life in hospital. Mm. I've never been seriously ill. Um, and what did I do to deserve that? I mean, I exercise. I don't smoke. But I do, lots of people I know exercise, don't, don't smoke, and they get a bad, I got a good health hand. Um, so that is an extraordinary important fact. And, and it puts a barrier between me and those who haven't had it. I mean, uh, you know, I'm very conscious that one of the, you know, that, that uh, my, my late mother who died at um, uh, 54 um, and had terrible, all kinds of, she had, was diagnosed with cancer at 37 and that she used to say there are those who know and those who don't know. And I, I through her, I, I know, but I know intellectually, I don't know. In, in the way that she meant to know. And there are people who do. So that's a barrier. But, um, and I can try to be empathetic and to cross it, but at some level that, that the barrier between the person who is not feeling pain at that moment and the person who is, mm -hmm. is one of the most fundamental of all human barriers. So we need empathy, we need sympathy, um, but we also need to say, no, there's just no, um, there's, if you feel pain, that is, 
Yeah. <laughs> so central to who you are. And if you don't, that's also central to who you are. That's right. And yes, and we, it's a really good analogy because we, those of us who are not feeling pain are wandering around as if this is normal, that our, that our bodies should be pain free, when in actual fact, our bodies are going through all these incredibly complicated systems to ensure that we don't collapse and fall apart and that our spleen doesn't you know, <laughs> interfere with our blood system in various weird ways that, that, that it would naturally do were it not for the Herculean effort of our physiology to to keep us well. Um, and similarly, I mean, I, when we're talking about privilege, you know, people talk about white privilege or straight privilege or male privilege. Most of the privileges, I always say, that uh, that we enjoy are invisible to us. I mean, you were born in Canada and I was born in Australia. What greater privilege could you have than to be born into these fluffy, mild-mannered, wealthy, ridiculously opulent democracies in comparison to anywhere else in the world at any other era like that and that's just a privilege that doesn't that doesn't even sort of land in our in our consciousness or, or our lexicon um speaking of reality i'm just interested in reality intruding into that into that cotton wool world um 9-11 where were you on 9-11 uh, i was i was working in the bush administration um i was uh um i uh, that was a very intense. Uh, at the time, uh, our children were small, um, so I, I had um, carpool. Was I, I was in a carpool? So I, the White House day starts typically around seven a.m., um, but I had a carpool that week, so that day. So I didn't get to the office until um, close to eight thirty, and I, after dropping off all these children, I was driving in silence, <laughs> blissful silence. <laughs> So I had no idea of what was going on in the world. And, um, and I, I remember arriving at the complex and, um, the complex being the white house, the, 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 ex the executive office. Yeah. So yeah. there's the white is the, the building, you know, is the white house. Most people there work beside it in something called the executive office. Building, yes. Right. Big gray limestone pile. So I had an office there. Um, and, uh, I parked my car and, uh, walked in there and, um, and I remember the feeling of walking along the, the, these very long corridors and, and suddenly hearing TVs coming on. So it must have been, this must have been eight, about 8.45. Which is um, when the first plane hit the tower right. in New York, but before the Pentagon. Yeah. Because I had the sense of walking past open door and hearing TVs, because people usually had the TV in their office on, but silent. So they could see, mm. you know, the, the crawl, but not be distracted. And then suddenly the volumes were getting up and, and, um, and then... We and then I got to my office and um, you know I, I uh, put on my TV and and uh oh and then my phone I, my primitive cell phone rang it was my wife calling and she said you you um, something and she has very um, sharp intellect and intuition for these things she said something is seriously wrong you better get out of there and I said absolutely not uh, absolutely not uh, and uh, first I don't know if there is anything wrong and second and then I had all these you know grandiose visions of my role in the world. Um, you know, <laughs> you on I, horseback, uh, yeah, yeah exactly. The, I'm uh, saying the, the army. And, 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 uh, and then comes the second strike, uh, says about 10 past nine. And now there's just no mistake that something terrible is happening. And I, just, and then we were flushed out of there. I mean, um, I remember, um, people, the, 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 the uniform secret service, the, the, you were all familiar with the guys in the suits with the president. There's a big uniform secret service contingent that keeps order. And they were, they were knocking on people's doors and saying, um, everyone, you have to leave, you have to leave. And people were resistant and no, you have to leave, you have to leave. And I remember, um, some people began to move quite fast through the corridors in very wide corridors. 
I remember Secret Service guy saying to everybody, don't run, don't run, just just keep moving, but don't run. And then there was, a, in my memory, it's a short pause. I don't know how long it was. I, one of the officers said, I've already, run! <laughs> 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 yeah, Ladies, take off your heels, get out of there. I mean, and, I would have been uh, like, you know, don't run. I would have been like, do you know how fast a 757 goes? Like, if yeah. there's one coming, yeah. we should probably run, uh, you know, depending. Right. And, and, and we've all found ourselves milling around in the center of Washington with all the uh, pagers and uh, primitive cell phones. And sorry, were they pagers. telling, when they were telling you to move, to move, were they taking you somewhere or were they just disgorging you out onto the street? Right. Well, this is, this is the thing that was so crazy about what happened on that day. So the White House, as I later learned, the White House had an emergency plan that had been written during the Cold War. And the uh, contingency for which it was written was, of course, a decapitating nuclear strike against the White House. And so the solution was there's a, a small, in those days, now it's much bigger, but in those days, a small bunker beneath the White House, and that's where Vice President Cheney and a few other people went. And the president, who was the plan was the president would be put on a plane. He happened to be on a plane anyway. So you'd get the president up in the air and he would mastermind the war fighting. And then everybody else would be left to be vaporized by the incoming Soviet nuclear warheads, which would be very sad for them and their loved ones. But didn't make it a big problem. What do you do with these people after? So the Cold War ends in 1991 and no one gets around to, and we move into this new era and no one gets around to revisiting the Cold War plan. Mm. Um, and so the, no one had thought of what happens if everybody has to leave the White House because of a, a threat of a decapitating <laughs> strike, but they're all alive and well. We then know what, what we to do, do with them? POTUS. We know what to do with Cheney. What the fuck do we do with David Frum? Exactly. So, so we end up being like excluded out onto the streets north of Lafayette Square, if you know your Washington geography. And we're all sort of standing there saying, now what do we do? So we all open our pagers and they're dead. We use our primitive cell phones and, and they're dead. Um, and, and then, and the traffic is, and by now it's clear there's this giant global disaster and the traffic, you know, and some people, I remember some people saying, well, I'm going to walk home. And if anybody needs me, uh, maybe the page will be working. And, and um, uh, some people went to a nearby hotel saying, well, they'll have cable. Um, and uh, I went to um, the offices of the American Enterprise Institute, which were nearby where I had friends and I knew there'd be a TV and computer and I spent an hour there. And then I was able, my, my, we were, the cell phones began to work again. I was able to make contact. And then, um, uh, I, there, then we found a, a workspace. And this is actually kind of a funny story about the day. Um, the White House doesn't, or at least didn't then, look like it at all like the West Wing. It was not cool and sleek and modern. Even the, the West Wing itself looked like um, a small town insurance company, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and like a profitable one, but but it, it's not it's not cutting edge technology at all. And and I'm sent to this address. So okay, do, we've taken it, we've got a space, a workspace and on the top floor, and and you take the elevator and it, it was Gorgeous, this workspace. It, it had these, these doors that go whoosh, whoosh, when you exit the elevator. And I, okay, this is like now it's like the movies. Now we see the secret headquarters. But it turned out, no, no, it was the Washington office of Daimler Chrysler. And somebody on the White House staff was married to somebody there. And they just use our offices. And, and, and so that's where I spent the afternoon. It's Private the opulence and, uh, and public squalor. Right, and, and that's where we. And, how and did you how did you fe how did you feel david like as it was unfolding i mean i remember watching it from here again as a as a university student and seeing it unfold and i had a, a love affair with new york where i would uh, subsequently move for for 12 years and i had i had been there the previous 
summer and been on top of the World Trade Towers and was a fan of David Letterman and Woody Allen. And so there was a, it felt like my heart was being ripped out, but there was also that anxiety about what exactly does this mean for the world? What exactly is happening? How do I fit this into, I mean, I immediately, I'd done enough global politics at university to immediately know that it was Afghanistan, that it was Bin Laden. And, you know, would that eru- was this the first salvo in uh, a civilizational war? Like, where was yeah. your heart at on that day? Well, uh, my children were, uh, my, we then had two small children and my wife was pregnant with, um, with our third. And um, I wasn't able to reach her, but um, I knew what she was doing. She had, she had gotten the car and raced up to the Jewish day school where they were at school um, to retrieve them. And, um, and so my, my mind was there. I wouldn't be able to talk to her for a long time during the day. And of course, what they, what the school had done is everyone was think everyone believed that there would be more attacks and no one knew quite knew where they were. And it was pretty unlikely that the suburban Jewish day school would be on a target list, but, um, but you couldn't rule it out. Um, there haven't enough attacks and maybe there were indigenous sympathizers. So they, they, um, my wife got up there and the kids were all, um, in the auditorium and um, a number of uh, the children there were um, people from defense department or military families. And by then we knew that the Pentagon had been, or they knew the Pentagon had been hit. And so these kids had to wonder whether their dad or mom was among the casualties in the Pentagon. Um, and so I, 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 so I, my heart was there until we made contact and, and we were all uh, safe and sound. And then I found that one of our closest friends in Washington, but probably four in the afternoon, one of our closest friends in Washington was on the plane that struck the Pentagon. Um, and, uh, who was that? Uh, uh, Barbara Olson, who was yeah, the right. um, wife of, T- of Ted Olson, the solicitor general. I think she was and, on the way to, to Bill Maher's show, wasn't she? To do Bill Maher's show in LA or was that someone else? Uh, no, that's exactly right. Although the Bill Maher people are very sensitive on the subject. They said that she was traveling. She had, was she, they, they had, she, they had said she was coming to LA anyway. And that's why they invited her on the show because they, okay. they're it's like one of those things, like, I don't know that it makes a difference at this point, but whenever you raise it with anyone involved, with, no, she was, she was coming to LA anyway. Yeah. Right. It wasn't our fault. We right. didn't get her killed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. Barbara Olson was uh, amazing. And, um, yeah, I've interviewed, I've interviewed her husband, uh, who's also, a, yeah. um, an incredible amazing guy. Person. Um, all right, let's let's leave that. I mean, the, you know, we could go into the 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 fallout of that that tragedy and how it shaped your worldview. But I'd like to just sort of end by th- by talking about the present day and what's next for American democracy. You've you've become something of a hero in recent years on the left. Uh, I don't know if that has struck you as an unlikely uh, <laughs> coda to your political career, but um, in in your principled opposition to to Donald Trump, you've become sort of one of the good Republicans on the left and. At the same time as that has happened, there's also been a counter narrative to that, which is, uh, yeah, he's the good guy now, but he's a Johnny come lately to the party. Uh, and the, the work that he and his ideological colleagues did in the early 2000s laid the groundwork for the corruption of the Republican Party and its, its descent into crazy because uh, the George W. Bush administration was uh, reactionary and, and pandering to that wing of, uh, of dumb uh, Republican thinking. How do you see your role in where we find ourselves today? I, I have to tell you, I, I don't think about this question very much. I, and I don't think, I think it's a bad question to think about. I mean, I think every day you have work to do and you go do it. Um, and if you're constantly checking yourself in the mirror, um, you're not going to do it. And uh, I, uh, for sure, there's no hero. I mean, I, 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 I dislike terms like 
um, re- resistance. Remember that used to be used a lot. Mm. Uh, my, my own view always was: if there's no risk of torture, you're not the resistance. Um, you're you're <laughs> you know, just uh, that's that's not what's going on here. What we what we're, and what we're what we were engaged in is a threat of um, uh, of corruption at a time when the American political system was for other reasons under under terrible pressure. Um, you know, so my role is, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to, uh, is to try to show people as best I can what I think the world is like in, in a way that I hope will be useful to them. And uh, it doesn't matter what they, they think of me. And um, uh, it really doesn't. And it's, it's not interesting to me. And, and like, I, you know, uh, uh, that's, that's why we have personal lives. Um, what, what is interesting to me is, um, do, am I, is the work I do, is it, is it, am I doing, is it as honest as I can make it? Is it useful to people? Um, and is it trying to pr- protect the country from some, uh, evils? And so some things, and, and it's not, and I, I, I haven't, I, on some things I have changed my views over time. I've become much more sympathetic post the, um, global financial crisis and the great recession to the importance of social insurance. Um, and I, I have definitely been affected by the Iraq and George W. Bush experience to be more skeptical than ever and more and skeptical in a way that I probably wasn't then and should have been about the ability to uh, make um, governments to use force to make positive changes. But um, on, on many of the things, I mean, it's just, it's, it's like walking around when you, it's like walking around, um, you know, any kind of physical object that you see different things from different angles. So I think with all of us in politics that at different moments, we find ourselves associated with different people. That's sort of normal because the, they keep changing the questions. So, uh, you know, if in, in 2015, when there was this huge immigration surge into Western Europe, um, you know, I was, I, I thought that, um, the Europeans and especially the Germans are taking too many people too fast. I've always been conscious of the risk to political stability of too much mass migration at too fast a rate. And so I was writing things that seemed very conservative and I had all these conservative friends. And then Donald Trump's nomination became a reality. And, you know, I have strong feelings about integrity in politics. And I, I knew the history of Donald Trump and I was very worried about his um, affinity for authoritarianism, which was on the rise in um, across the developed world. And, and so then I developed new liberal friends and I'm sure I will have if I'm given life and health, you know, different kinds of arrangements in, in the future. That's not important. Um, what's important is that we um, do the best work that we can in the best way that we can. And we just try to be honest with our, our readers. One of the questions when you're talking about, I'm still thinking about the thing you said about talking to the avatar, mm. uh, which is such a great way to think about it and a, a real tribute to your self-understanding. You can see that. One of the questions that all of us in journalism have to ask ourselves is, who are you working for? Because a lot of people are not working for the reader. And uh, I think that the beginning of all good work is you say, I, I don't care who else, you know, I'm working for the reader. That's who I work for. And uh, I'm there to do the best job I can for the reader. And and it doesn't matter what they think of me. Per- I, I learn a lot from people I know nothing about. I learn a lot from people I admire. I learn things from people I don't admire. Um, I learn things from people I admire, but wouldn't like personally. I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I learn things from people I do like personally and don't admire. <laughs> it's just, there are a lot of permutations lot of range. here. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, but, I need to draw uh, a flow chart of this. Uh, yeah, but just that's my job is to help people understand their world better. 
David, uh, you've helped me understand uh, my world a little bit better today. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for articulating yourself. It's a pleasure to talk. Uncomfortable Conversations is produced by Stefan Postuma. Follow me, Josh Zepps, on Twitter and Instagram for all the latest. May your day be fruitful, your mind humble, your enemies generous, and your conversations perfectly, sparklingly, delectably uncomfortable.